that's happening in my mind and in my heart, absolutely he does. He created, he fashioned, as we were just singing from Psalm 33, fashioned your heart. He fashioned it. He knows what's going on in your head. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows our secrets. Now picture that for a second. Romans and chapter 2. We are continuing this morning to study the book of Romans as we have been now uh, since January. It's hard to believe, you know, we are moving into the fourth month of the year and we are not even through chapter 2. There's just so very much here in front of us. So um, it's, it's intentional that we're taking our time this morning to pay attention to, to all of the words and to each phrase and where all this stuff fits into our current context because one of the things that we definitely want to make sure that we are getting out of God's word is how that applies to our lives today. So as you are opening up to the book of Romans, I just ask once again that you bow your head for a brief word of prayer. So our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you again and thank you so much for your patience with us as we desperately, desperately need that this morning. We think of the current situation that we are facing, one that we have not faced before, and um, Lord, we ask you to speak into that. Wherever our hearts are this morning, whatever has our attention divided and possibly even taken off from exactly where it needs to be, we ask that right here in this place, you would guide and direct our thoughts and our hearts and our strength, that we might serve and honor you with everything that we say and everything that we do. We want to serve you in every respect. As we think and we consider um, the words that we are about to study and to look into, Lord, we know that they're powerful. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you would please guide and direct us. Speak right to our hearts and help us to know and understand exactly what it is you would have us take away from this beautiful passage. So we thank you in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. I'm just getting situated here. So as we're thinking about the book of Romans, what's been called by many the meat and potatoes of our faith, let's take it exactly as that this morning. Let's sit here and let's just together feast on God's word. So I'd like to start reading, because um, actually today's sermon is called Impartial Part 3, and um, it's surprising because I thought this was going to be a two-part deal, and uh, no, it's just way too much to stuff into such a short amount of time. So uh, this is part three, and I'm thinking next week we're going to be um, on to talking about something just a little bit different. Uh, so the verse goes like this, if you'll follow along these verses. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
Look at what it goes on to say. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, we have three points today. Point number one, people are judged by what they know of God's law. Real simple, real easy. People are judged by what they know of God's law. So that brings about a question, as it should. A a big question. What about what they do not know of the law? What about those uh, words and phrases? What about those portions of the, of the scripture they're not familiar with? The question is, are they responsible for that? Are they responsible for, for all of those also? Well, let's just look at what Romans 2, 12-13 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So, it brings about a question about what Paul is talking about here. So, what Paul is talking about are two groups of people. All right, number one, he's talking about the Jews, obviously. And uh, number two, he's talking about the Gentiles. So the question that we should be asking is, do the Jews have an advantage because they have access to the written law? Do the Jews have an advantage because they have access to the written law? So if we're all going to be judged by the law, are the Jews in some way privileged? And that's exactly what the question I'm asking that I'm posing to you this morning, deals with. Do Jews have an advantage over everyone else because they have the written law? Again, this deals with privilege. Well, the question that we should always be asking first and foremost is what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this question? Do the Jews have an advantage over everyone because they have the written law? The answer is clearly found in Galatians 2.16. It says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified. Stop right there. Right where you are, shake the windows in your house by reading those three words with me. Yet we know that a person, say it, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law... No one will be justified. If you have your Bible open this morning, that is such an important passage to underline. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, look for a second with me. What does the Bible say again about about this in Ephesians 2.8? It says this, For by grace, for by grace, everyone say that word this morning, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So, question. If then, it is by grace we are saved and not by our own doing, then does the Jew have an advantage? And the answer to that is no. They do not. 
You see, you don't do anything to earn grace. Grace in and of itself is a gift. It's something that is unearned, and that's why we are able to receive it. We do nothing to earn God's grace. So those out there that are preaching you get an extra measure of God's grace by taking communion, they're absolutely wrong. Grace is a gift. There's nothing that you do to enact the grace of God. There's nothing you do to engage the grace of God. God's grace is a gift. It takes nothing that you do to get it. So if then it is by grace we are saved and not by our own doing, then what does the Jew have as an advantage? Really nothing, because think about this for a second. The truth is, and we hear some people talking about this, and this is an offensive statement to some people, but it's true. Equal opportunity does not guarantee equal outcome ever. It never does, never has, never will. Equal opportunity does not guarantee equal outcome. So there are many people that are saying now, well, some people are more privileged than I am. They have this or they have this. Equal opportunity. So if everyone has the same exact opportunity, it does not guarantee equal outcome ever. So say, well, Jason, you're getting uh, kind of on the side of culture here. Uh, is that from the Bible? That's a very good question. And um, I plan on showing you this morning that it absolutely is. Think for just a second. Last week, we talked about the parable of the talents. I'm sure you all remember this. I want to read through this section of scripture just one more time. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, he gave two. To another, one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two, excuse me, two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you have delivered five, you delivered to me five talents, and I have delivered five talents more. I've made five talents more. Look at what that says. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what is my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. 
But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there are some that are probably thinking right now, well, wait a minute, they didn't have equal opportunity. Clearly, the guy with 10 talents had more opportunity than the guy with two. Clearly, the guy with two talents had more opportunity than the guy with one. No, the guy with 10 talents had a greater risk. He could have lost it all. The guy with two talents had a greater risk than the guy with one talent could have lost it all. They all had equal opportunity to invest the money to bring to their master. Yet they all had different outcomes, all right? Uh, Different levels of what they brought back. But the one that did nothing with it, his outcome was entirely different. See, equal opportunity does not equal equal outcome ever. It just doesn't work. So you say, well, uh, you have to do a lot of, uh, of jumping around, Jason, to get to that. Well... How about this passage? Because there's definitely no jumping around here at all. I can guarantee it. Y'all remember the story, I'm sure. It's from Luke 17. Uh, it's, it's a healing of Christ. It's a miracle. This is a recorded account, and it's just beautiful. So think about it for just one second. The ten lepers. It reads this way. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at the distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, again, addressing that race issue. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. You see, each one of them received the same exact healing. No matter whether they had leprosy on their finger, whether they had leprosy on their entire body, they all were completely and totally cleansed. Equal opportunity. Yet how many of them returned? One. Further, just proving that point. I want everyone to think of of one more case study here. It's actually two accounts in in one little case study we're doing. And this is the rich young ruler. Y'all remember this guy. This guy came forward and he really wanted to talk to Christ and find out what it took for him to be saved. Look how the passage reads in Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. It says this, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now look at the red verse here. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This man had an opportunity to abandon all and follow Christ. And his response was sadness. I want you all to think of one more guy from the Bible. This guy, Levi. You all know him as Matthew. 
Uh, also, Levi is a tax collector. He wrote the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, we, we spend quite a bit of time in that throughout the year, Christmas time and around Easter and at other times. Just a, just a beautiful book. He wrote this book. His calling was, was pretty close to about the same. He's a wealthy man. He's a tax collector. So the way this works is, is this. If you're going to be a tax collector, you have no friends. The government is not your, is not your friend. Um, you do not have friends in your people because you are the one collecting taxes for the government. And the government says, this is what we expect of you. And then they give a figure. Anything you collect beyond that is yours. So because of this, tax collectors were very wealthy because they were able to steal from uh, those whom they were collecting taxes from. So it might be double, might be triple, it might just be a percentage. But Levi was a very wealthy man. Yet when Levi gets up from that tax booth, when Christ says, follow me, he leaves everything. Everything. Both of these men the rich young ruler and Levi, have an equal opportunity to set aside their wealth and follow Christ. They're both presented the opportunity, yet we see completely and entirely different outcomes. Point number two, God's judgment, get this, is just. It's always just. There is never a time where God makes a decision in judgment and it is anything less than just. Why? Because he is just. Because he defines justice by his very nature, by his very character, by his very being. And he is holy. He is completely and totally removed from sin. That means when God says something is bad, it is bad. He says something's evil, something is evil. All right, so question. How can God's judgment be truly just when many do not know his law? How can it be truly just when many just do not know his law? The question is, is it right for God to have equal expectations on Jews and Gentiles alike regarding the law? Well, there is a false claim out there, and I've heard many preachers say this, and it is absolutely false. It's absolutely wrong. It's not true. Show me in the Bible where it says it. You will not find it, and that's this. God expects sinners to act like sinners. No. God's command for humanity is that we image God. God is completely holy, which means he does not sin, which means in order for us to image God, we must also not sin. God does not expect sinners to act like sinners, okay? God wants us all to image him. That's his, his command for humanity. So question, a very good question. When did the commandment come? Do not murder. When did that come from God, everyone? Well, did, did that come in the Old Testament, the New Testament? Well, yeah, you say the Old Testament, yeah. When did it come? Well, it came in the book of Exodus, if you'll all remember, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. So, question, was Exodus the first book of the Bible? All God's people said no. No, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Well, I want everyone to think for a second. If thou shalt not kill came in the second book of the Bible, you remember this, this picture here, Cain and Abel? You all remember that from Genesis chapter 4? The question is, if the admonition not to murder didn't come until the second book of the Bible, 
then what did Cain do wrong? If we do not receive the admonition from God or the command from God, thou shalt not shed innocent blood, what did Cain do wrong? Another question for you, all right? Here it is. Did the command not to kill have to come on stone tablets for us to know it's wrong? Consider that for a second. Did the command not to murder another human being have to come on stone tablets in order for you and I to know that it is wrong? Well, of course, everyone says, no, absolutely not. Why would we say that? Why would we answer that way? Because there are people all over the world that uh, believe that it's abhorrent to murder other people. People that have not heard the word of God. People that have not heard this commandment. So uh, that's strange. So you're saying that that one didn't have to come on stone in order for it to be uh, written down? Another question for you. What about the other laws? What about the other laws that were given? What about this one? What about do not covet? What about do not covet? Are all people held equally responsible for that? Well, you see people all over the place looking and wanting other people's things, and they're really not seared in conscience too much. Uh, what about uh, remember the Sabbath? What about people over in uh, you know, some remote island off from the Caribbeans that have not yet received the word of God? They've been a closed community. Um, are they responsible to keep the Sabbath? Well, here's the way that this all plays out. When a person holds to values, it proves that person knows something of God's law. So um, are they responsible to keep the Sabbath? That's a very good question. Are they responsible not to covet? Very good question. It depends on whether or not they have received that admonition. You see, our entire value system comes from the fact that God is a creator. Our values come from God because he is the creator. So any values that you and I hold dear, they come to us because God is the creator. There are some Christians that you and I know that seem to have a higher moral standard than either one of us do, at least for us. Well, Christians shouldn't do that, and Christians shouldn't do that. Where does that come from? Well, uh, that comes because of the image of God. See, we value things, don't miss this, we value things because we were made in God's image, and our task is to have dominion. That's what he told us to do. Have dominion. That's why we value things, because we're made in God's image, because we're made like God. God gives it value, we value it. Humanity has individual value because we were made in the image of God. So, why is it then do many civilizations all over the place that have had no access to God's word hold murder as abhorrent? Why is that? Well, just take a look one more time at this, this verse here. Just 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. See, in some ways, we have these things that are just pre-programmed to us. God just gave them to us. All right? So... Because, because some of God's law is imprinted on our heart, revealed by our conscience, then what? Then point number three, nothing is hidden from God, all right? So why do so many civilizations hold murder as being abhorrent? Because some of God's law is imprinted on their hearts. 
And it's revealed by our conscience because we see someone hurt, someone uh, in some way harmed or injured, and we hold that to be a personal injury, and we don't want to take part in that because that is imprinted on our hearts, and it's revealed by our conscience. Remember, point number three, nothing, nothing is hidden from God. Look what the verses say. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So this means that um, someone doesn't necessarily have to have the law in order to keep it, all right? They show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Don't miss that. It's so important. Our conscience bears witness. When people do wrong, they know they're doing wrong. It is work. Remember from chapter 1, it takes work for us to deny God. We have to subdue. We have to suppress truth in unrighteousness. We have to suppress our conscience. Our conscience bears witness when you and I do wrong. When you say something to someone that hurts them, you feel bad about it, and you should. When the unbeliever says something to someone that hurts them, the only way they have the ability to not feel bad about that is if they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness because our conscience bears witness. Look at what the verse says. God will judge the secrets of men. Not just the things that are out in the open. The secrets. The secrets. Conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse us. You see, there's this conversation going on within many of our heads, and that is not insanity. That is your conscience talking to you. When you and I do something wicked or something evil, when we do something hurtful to someone else or to ourselves, and we feel bad, there's a reason for that. God created you and I with a conscience so that we would be able to apply the truth. So we're seared or sometimes even excused by our conscience. Sometimes we do things and we can easily say, I should not feel bad about this because I am helping that person. And you need to sort that out. You need to check with the Word of God and make sure that that is the right application for the moment. Very encouraging. Very encouraging. God will judge the secrets of men. You say, wow, that's really encouraging. You mean God knows what's happening in my mind and in my heart? Absolutely he does. He created, he fashioned, as we were just singing from Psalm 33, he fashioned your heart. He fashioned it. He knows what's going on in your head. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows our secrets. Now picture that for a second. You're walking around with a constant, constant display of what's going on inside of you for God to see. God will judge the secrets of men. How? This is where the real encouragement comes in, everybody. How is he going to do that? What's the passage say? He'll judge the secrets of men by Christ. He'll judge the secrets of men by Christ. So this means uh, one of two things. Either this is very, 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 very good news. It is gospel. Or it's very, very bad news. Because for those who are distant from Christ, who have not a true and abiding relationship with Christ, that's trouble. That means that when God looks on us, we are going to have to account for every single thing that we think. All those thoughts, just because they don't come out to our hands, that does not mean that there's not some wrongdoing going on there. It does not mean that there's not a wicked heart condition that needs to be dealt with. But because he will judge our secrets... By Christ. This can also be extremely encouraging to us. 
Because there is a standard which I do not have the strength to live up to. There is a righteousness which I will never attain no matter how much good we do. No matter how much food we put in Becky's, no matter how much food we put down in salt and light, it will not undo the wrong that we've done. I pray everyone understands that this morning. No matter how much good we do during the coronavirus, it will not erase what we have done. There is one way to be judged and to be justified, and that is by Christ. Either God judges us by Christ's righteousness or by our own. In Christ, we are called to do good works. This is what we've been talking about now for three weeks. We are called to make decisions that honor God, and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good. Before the creation of the world, you and I were, were part of this plan where we were created to do good works assigned to us before the creation of the world. It is only by Christ that we receive and attain righteousness. By Christ, through faith. So when God judges the secrets of our hearts, Christian, worry not. Because God is looking on you through Christ's righteousness. Through Christ's righteousness. What a beautiful thought for a second. That means that yes, in that very moment when he hung on the cross, for those hours when he was completely abandoned and forsaken by everyone, when the world went dark, because God turned his face away and poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ, his son. In those moments, in that final breath, when he declared, it is finished, that means it is finished for you and I forever. There's no other way to attain righteousness. There's no other way we should seek to be judged. All of our secrets, all of our thoughts, all of our conscience that bears witness against us, but by Christ, he did this for you and he did this for me. I ask everyone to just join me for a word of prayer. And uh, we are going to close in singing once again that beautiful doxology. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your guidance. We thank you for your love. We thank you. You have given us this open door to be judged not by the things that we say and the things that we do in the end. Our righteousness is not attained by these things. You care deeply what we say you care deeply what we do. You want us to do good in every single step. You want us to seek you. We know this. But we give praise to you and adoration that that does not attain righteousness for us. That is a display of the righteousness of Christ covering us. And when we mess up, 1 John 1, 9, you tell us you are, you are righteous and you are just. You're ready to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we turn to you now this very hour, and we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.